welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. People want to follow authentic leaders. Young people especially, they want real. They want vulnerable. They don't want some cartoon character with a mask. You know, and when you say that you care, they want to know you really care, not because you went to a seminar or read it in a book. It takes courage, the poet E.E. E. Cummings said, to grow up and become who you really are. So how do you develop that kind of mature authenticity? And what are the benefits when you do? That's the subject of this week's episode. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Warwick and I discuss today the key building blocks of an authentic life, from having an anchor for your soul to finding true friends, from putting yourself in the environment that fits who you are to doing what you're good at and passionate about. Along the way, you'll even get to hear a section from the just-released audio version of Warwick's book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance, about why authenticity is so hard but also so essential. I know you're looking forward to this one because it's about one of your favorite subjects, because I hear you talk about it all the time when we're recording a podcast and when we're not. And listener, that is, we are talking today about authenticity specifically about the importance of authenticity in moving beyond your crucible, getting through your crucible, surviving your crucible. Authenticity, if you plotted a, 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 a roadmap along your crucible experience, authenticity would show up as a necessary uh, flag, a pin in a lot of places along that journey. And uh, Warwick, as we get going here, one of the things I thought was interesting about, and I hadn't thought about this before, but authenticity is both hard when you're coming out of a crucible. It's also essential in order to come out of a crucible. And that's when you think about it, to be said of a lot of things that we talk about here, right? Uh, about humility, about vision, all those things. Vision's hard, but it's important. It's essential. But landing here, this is, I know, a particularly important subject to you, near and dear to your heart, authenticity. Why is that? Why uh, is, is authenticity maybe not your favorite aspect of moving beyond your crucible? But I know it's, it's one that you talk about quite a bit. I think in a way, the world wants us to be somebody else, to be inauthentic. And we tend to be pulled into wanting to please others, to put on a mask, to be scared of who we are. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that. But when you're coming out of a crucible, it's especially tough because you might feel like whether it was setback, failure, maybe something terrible was done to you. The last thing you want to do is be yourself. You might feel ashamed of yourself, embarrassed about yourself. And so the whole concept of being authentic, it's almost the hardest time is when you've gone through a crucible, you want to hide. The real you is in pieces, is broken, typically in the depths of the pit of your crucible. So it's hard anyway, but in a crucible, it's really, really hard. And it's interesting. Here's a, here's a 
uh, a trivia fact, listener, that you may not know. You probably don't know because I'm not sure we mentioned it in the 90 episodes that have come before this, but your book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance, had a working title in your mind at one point. What was that working title? It was Authentic Leadership. Back in, as listeners know, 2008, I gave a short message in church, some sermon illustration, and somehow what I shared about my story and lessons learned uh, made folks think, gosh, you know, we want to hear more about this story. And so I started writing the book. And so this notion of being authentic, I mean, there's another book called Authentic Leadership that's more of a scholarly business work, but yeah, that notion of authenticity, you know, really was uh, one of the core pieces of why I wanted to write this book. Which is why, as we're kind of looking to pull apart the book a little bit, now that the book is out, as we do the podcast, one of the re- that's one of the reasons why we landed on authenticity as sort of the first subject that we talk about that comes from the book, because it was so important to you, you almost named the book that, um, even before you had, had kind of gotten your, your, your hands around the idea of moving beyond your crucible, you were talking about the importance of authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a, here's the great thing about the, the, the ever expanding, uh, roster of crucible leadership assets. And that is, um, rather than just listening, especially listening to me as the co-host blather on listener, you get the opportunity to listen to Warwick read from his audiobook. Warwick is going to, we're going to play a section from the audiobook rather than Warwick and I spending a lot of time unpacking why authenticity is so hard. Remember, I started the conversation here by saying authenticity is both hard and essential to moving beyond your crucible. Uh, there's a section uh, in Warwick's, uh, chapter three of Warwick's book that's called, Why is Authenticity So Hard? So to really kick off the conversation, here is Why is Authenticity So Hard? From Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. Being authentic is one of the scariest and most difficult things you can be. It flies in the face of our culture and conventional thinking. You could even say it flies in the face of conventional business thinking. Marketing teaches us to identify the needs of the target market and then design the product and the communication about it to meet the needs of the consumer. Give the consumers what they want and tell them why that product meets their needs. This may work in marketing products, but not in leading people. People want to know who their leaders really are. Being authentic is one of the biggest gifts you can give to yourself and to other people. Simply put, you cannot lead if you are not yourself. People do not want to follow inauthentic leaders. However, being authentic, being truly you, takes courage. It is one thing to be rejected while you're wearing a mask. In that case, people are not really rejecting you, they are rejecting your mask. Putting on a mask is safe. You can craft a mask that appeals to the broadest possible group of people. Do people want you to be outgoing? Then you can be outgoing. Do they want you to be witty and intelligent? Then you can be witty and intelligent. Whatever role is called for, you can play. All it requires is a bit of training, perhaps the right degrees, and observations of people who have the characteristics you desire, and you can be whoever you want to be. 
But when you are so concerned about being who your target audience wants you to be, or who they think they want you to be, you forget who you really are. Consider politics. Candidates poll test what the hottest issues are for a given election cycle. Then they appear to know what they're talking about on those issues. This strategy sends the message that real solutions are not as important as appearing to be knowledgeable, credible, and understanding. So whether it is healthcare, energy, the economy, foreign affairs, or the great social issues, candidates try to appear knowledgeable and compassionate. Above all, they want to appear to be more knowledgeable and compassionate than their rivals. But many, if not most, avoid authenticity. As Jack Nicholson famously says in the movie A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. Can you imagine a candidate telling the public what he or she thought the important issues were, even if they were not even among the top 10 issues their pollsters said people were concerned about? It is the ultimate taboo, telling the public not what you think they want to hear, but what you believe they need to hear, and being yourself as you do so. Maybe your pollsters are telling you that the public wants you to be compassionate and empathetic, but you are more of a tough, no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is kind of person. The pollsters will tell you that if you have to deliver painful medicine, i.e. the truth, say it in a way the public wants you to say it. Don't be yourself when delivering the bad news. The point here is not that cold and gruff wins or that being compassionate and understanding is bad, nor that it is wrong to try to be compassionate. It is that you have to be yourself and do what you believe. That is the hallmark of authenticity. Simply put, it is being who you are rather than who you are not. You might be thinking, okay, I buy the fact that you need to advocate for what you really believe in and be yourself, not some other person. So what's next? The problem is that being yourself and advocating for what you believe in is more difficult than you might think. Who do you know who stands up for what they believe in, no matter what anyone thinks, and they were truly themselves without a thought of putting on airs or a mask? Think of your friends, your co-workers, and your family. Think of people in the public eye, politicians, entertainers, or people in the media. Think of people in history. How many people can you think of? It is difficult for most of us to come up with more than a handful. Authenticity in leadership is rare. The higher you go in the economic and social spectrum, the harder it is to find authentic leaders. It is easy to criticize leaders for being phony. That is certainly my tendency, and though I may be more sensitive to this than some others because of my background, I believe this is a common experience. The challenge is that as a person rises in leadership, the temptation emerges to put on airs and be who others want them to be, will be the right kind of person to fit in or get ahead. It is like a virus that creeps up and infects a person. How many times do we read about people who have been changed by success or rise to prominence? They ditch their old friends from the neighborhood. Those people simply wouldn't fit in, they tell themselves. They wouldn't feel comfortable in these circles. They acquire the trappings of power and success, the large house, the nice cars, and of course, the right friends, people who are comfortable with the house, the cars, and the new status. Not only do they have these designer friends, but they may also have designer wives. 
While there may also be designer husbands, it seems to be all too common for a man to make it, and then ditch his wife for the younger model who he believes can better showcase the fine clothes and jewellery he can now afford. It is easy to look down on all of this and condemn those who rise to economic and social power, seeing how their souls corroded and how they seem to sell out to the lifestyles and values of the rich and famous. However, try being in the situation and withstanding the pressure can form. I know how tough it is. Why do you know how tough it is? And, I, and before you answer that, let me go back to something that you said uh, in that in that segment from the book. You uh, and I didn't notice it before. Um, you said that you're sensitive. You personally are sensitive to not believing people are authentic because of your background. Talk a little bit about the way you grew up and how authenticity played or didn't play into that. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember if it's uh, in this current version of the book, because there's been a few versions uh, going back and forth. But there was one version of authenticity chapter in which it said, I grew up in the world of the inauthentic, you know, and it's sort of a haunting uh, line because... You know, when you grow up, as listeners would know, 150-year-old family media business with newspapers, TV, radio, assets, the equivalent of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. You know, we grew up in a large house in Sydney, Australia, on the water. You know, my parents had parties for visiting dignitaries, you know, prime ministers, politicians, business leaders, visitors from Hollywood. So we had just some of the elite people in society, you know. Uh, my parents with, and my mother would throw parties for 300 like it was nothing. I mean, these were, these were parties of a scale that when people were, from Hollywood come to Australia, they'd say, go look up, uh, you know, Lady Mary Fairfax. She'll throw you a party the likes of which you're not used to in Hollywood. <laughs> That's telling you something. That's saying something. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I, I lived and worked in Hollywood for <laughs> several years. So I know exactly what, I mean, how big a statement that is. And it's really as much the style and all. And and that was wonderful. I think that was, you know, tremendous. But some of the people there, they were just so concerned with impressing each other. You know, oh, I did this big deal and I met Prince so-and-so or Count, whoever it was. And, you know, it was just... There was this air of, I've made it, I'm successful, and I know these powerful people. And, you know, as a, I was sort of invited to those parties and as a teenager, and just my parents for the future of the newspaper business wanted me to be at those functions. And ever since then, I just became allergic to the whole putting on of airs to inauthenticity, and I've always craved the real, not not the phony. Still to this day, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time for people and, you know, a lot of politicians, irrespective of their political party, by definition, tend to put on a mask because that's part of being a politician. So I've always, I've ever since growing up in that environment, I've always been pretty allergic to lack of authenticity. So the book's called Crucible Leadership. Um, your consultancy is called Crucible Leadership. Talk a little bit about how authenticity or lack thereof can lead to crucibles and, on the other hand, can sort of chip away at your leadership. I mean, you said 
in the segment of the book that we played or you read, depending on how you're, how you're consuming this listener, you said, Warwick, you can't, you can't lead if you're not yourself. So how does the idea of authenticity play into both aspects of crucible leadership, the crucible part and the leadership part? Yeah, I mean, I think lack of authenticity, and we'll probably get into this more, is really a, a fundamentally a question of identity. It's this notion that people won't accept the real you, whoever you are. Maybe you grow up in a certain background and you want to put on this polished tone. I know in, in the UK, they talk about learning how to talk, you know, in the BBC accent, you know, instead of the mm -hmm. polished upper crust accent. And, and that's real, you know. Uh, you talk in the wrong accent, at least when I was in college in England, the late 70s, early 80s, it could be a job killer for elite getting into elite business. Uh, hopefully it's not as bad, but so I get it. I get it. There, are, I'm not sugarcoating this, but I, in general, I think, and hopefully it's not as bad in America, you know, there is the pressure to conform, but by not being yourself, it can sort of erode your sense of self. You don't know who you are. And you, in your, you're sort of striving to be somebody else. You can, you know, think, okay, I'm going to be happy with the cars and the, you know, wives, because typically there's more than one for, you know, guys that have made it. You just lose your whole sense of self as you're trying to be somebody else. You just wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and it's like, I don't know who that is anymore. It's unrecognizable to me. And so by lack of authenticity, there's a pretty good chance you will lose your sense of self, your soul, and whether you start, you know, drinking, substance abuse, other failures, bad stuff's probably going to happen if you try to put on some mask and be somebody that, that you're not. It's never good to be who you're not. You're, the soul yearns to be authentic, and you fight your divine design, you fight your soul. That's a good way that, to lead to uh, depression, anxiety, frustration, misery. It's not good. It's not good. You could see a psychologist. They'll never tell you to be somebody else. It's not a good way for mental or psychological health. So, so bad things inevitably happen. People want to follow authentic leaders. Young people especially, they want real. They want vulnerable. Mm -hmm. They don't want some cartoon character with a mask. You know, and when you say that you care, they want to know you really care, not because you went to a seminar or read it in a book and you ask a few questions, but it's clear that you could care less about the answers. You're just asking, so how's the family? How's the this? And, you know, and it's, you know, it's obvious you don't care. So if you want people to follow you, especially in times of crisis, you want to be real, you want to be authentic, you want to be vulnerable. So it's critical to both, uh, you know, your sense of wholeness, your sense of, um, you know, being happy, fulfilled, uh, being authentic, and it's critical in leadership. If you're not authentic, nobody's going to want to follow you, especially, you know, in this day and age when there's so much inauthenticity in some ways, people crave the authentic as much now as any time in history. So it's just so critical for yourself and your own sense of well-being as well as to lead anybody in anything. As you talk about being authentic as a leader, you also have talked many times about, and you said it here, I believe as well, that uh, when you launched the takeover, um, you were trying to be um, 
a media baron. You were trying to be the, you were trying to step into the shoes that were left to you from your great, great grandfather up to your dad. Um, you then realized later on that that wasn't who you were, that you were more of a reflective advisor than a take no, you know, prisoners take charge media person. I've never asked you this question. Have you ever wondered if the takeover would have gone differently if who you were authentically was that take charge media person, media baron person? Yeah. I mean, if if the company had been successful, it would have been tough because I don't know that I ever tried to be someone else. But it's funny, we're talking about Mask. There was an article that came out in a Australian uh, magazine. It was sort of the equivalent of the New York Times Sunday Magazine, that kind of thing. Uh, many years ago during the takeover years. And the headline was The Man Behind the Mask. And the notion was, since I never gave interviews, who is Warwick? What does he think? He's like inscrutable. It's like, what's really going on inside? And so, you know, right. I was sort of paranoid about people knowing who, who I was. It wasn't so much I put on a mask of who I was not. I put on this sort of like this opaque mask in which you couldn't tell what was going on inside. That's sort of a different kind of mask. It's just like not giving interviews, just being neutral. Because I was just, you know, I was just a, a really afraid. I was in a position of uh, not wanting to make mistakes. And um, yeah, so I, in a sense, did put on a mask, but it, was, it wasn't a mask with another face on it. It was like a mask, just a blank mask with nothing, you know? Well, I was going to say, and readers can see that picture from that magazine cover, which is included in in your book. You have that 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 photograph of the man behind the mask, because that was one of the one of the stinging examples of the way the press covered uh, yeah. everything. I mean, I think a, that. another aspect of really what you're asking is, in a sense, I was trying to live somebody else's life, and I've talked about this a bit in the book, and obviously before, uh, I was trying to live. John Fairfax's vision, uh, which was a wonderful vision to have a, a paper that would uh, be nonpartisan. The original masthead of the paper of the City Morning Herald was May Whigs Call Me Tory, Corey, Tory Call Me Whigs, which is basically make liberal call me conservative, conservative call me liberal. That was a wonderful vision to have a nonpartisan paper that would uplift the, the then colony of, of Australia. But that really wasn't even my dad's vision. He inherited that. So I was living somebody else's vision, which is hard to live an authentic life when you're living somebody else's life. So, yeah, you know, did the whole Oxford, Wall Street, Harvard Business School, as listeners would know, but I wasn't living my authentic life. I was living somebody else's life, somebody else's vision. And that caused uh, angst, frustration. And I didn't do it well because when you live somebody else's life, you won't do it well. By definition, you will feel frustrated and um, out of place. And I felt frustrated, out of place. And uh, yeah, every day was like a deer in the headlights um, going yeah. to work. And, and again, we've, we've talked about this uh, in the opening line of the speech uh, that I give. I talk about walking in in December 87 uh, when the takeover had finally completed I walk into the building, walk into the elevator for the first time as proprietor. Everybody knows who I am. My face was on newspapers, magazines, TV. And I'm in that elevator with journalists and other staff of John Fairfax Limited. And I'm saying nothing. I'm so uncomfortable. I just wanted to get out of that elevator. It was just, 
it was emblematic of that whole experience of just, um, I wasn't living my authentic life. And, uh, you know, it was very painful when the, when the takeover failed, ultimately in December 1990. But in other ways, it was a relief because I didn't have to live a lie, as, as people say, uh, to live, uh, to, live a, uh, to try and be a person. I fundamentally was not. So, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, I can testify how living a life of inauthenticity in the sense that I wasn't putting on somebody else's mask. I was putting on this faceless, opaque mask that really covered up who I was and what I was feeling. And uh, it was miserable. That is a good time. to, And I hate to say, after you say that, you know, I was miserable. That's a good time to kind of turn a little bit and explore, you know, listeners, as you're hearing Warwick talk about these things and you're thinking in the back of your head, am I living authentically? What, what, are, my, what are my strengths and what are my values and what are my uh, uh, things? There are, um, in the book, you talk about this and we can do it in kind of two stages. There's a first stage of sort of assessing where you're at. Are you living authentically? Are there ways, you know, what are the ways, Warwick, that, that listeners can start today, you talk about one small step a lot. What's one small step they can take today to sort of assess whether they're living authentically? And then we'll move on after that, after we sort of assess, here's your baseline, here's where you're at, then how can you go and and, and actually move toward living more authentically? But what's the first step to kind of, it, it, it's sort of an audit of, of, of where you're at, right? Yeah, absolutely, Gary. So one step is, uh, there's a, a number of assessments that can give you a handle on your strengths and weaknesses that form a pattern. Some are called motivated abilities. You know, it's not the totality of who you are, but it's it's no assessment will capture everything, but you've got obviously well-known ones like uh, Myers-Briggs and DISC, uh, 360s, which are very popular in, in the corporate world, which assess um, what are people above you, beside you, and below you in the organization shot think of you. So one I like is the Leisure Practices 360. Uh, there's the Enneagram, which is another assessment that is a good way of capturing who, who you are. Um, so all of those provide a good snapshot. Um, I think it, you know, it's also helpful to ask friends, family, even coworkers who you know well uh, about strengths and weaknesses. And, um, you know, it's probably a weird question to ask them, but it's, you know, so who do you think I am? You know, if they say, honestly, I have no clue. I don't know who you are you know, or that would not be a good answer. Or, you know, no. I, I used to know who you are, who you were. Now, I don't know. You know, I talk a lot about successful people. I mean, I grew up in a very wealthy background, so it's a little abnormal. But for those people that have quote unquote made it, they typically grow up in with one group of friends, they make it, and they move on to another group of friends. That's the typical journey. So maybe go back yeah. to ask the folks you knew in middle school or high school or friends and say, you know, so who do you think I am? And uh, you may like what you hear or you really may not like what you hear. So that's almost more of a, a character audit in terms of am I being uh, real? So you ask the right questions. And as we often say, careful what you ask for. Because if you ask those questions, there are people that may be dying to tell you. And, you know, if one person says, like, you know, you just probably just so fake. I mean, you just, I don't know who you are. That's fine. But if all your family and all your friends from when you grew up say, yep, you're just a fake. I don't know who you are anymore. 
they're probably not all wrong. It's That's one of the things about a 360. Why a 360 is powerful, which is slightly different, but it's all related, is if everybody around you, you know, your boss, your peers, and those under you say, you know what, Warwick, Gary, you are terrible at listening to people. Could they all be wrong? Maybe. But if everybody that works with you says something, that my assumption is they're probably right. Innocent until proven guilty. If everybody says or, you know, you're a micromanager or whatever it is. So, yeah, all of those things can be very helpful. So use those assessments both formally as well as informal conversations with family and friends. They can give you a lot of data that, that, that is helpful and maybe painful too. And the thing that you're looking for there, I think, when you do that on the plus side and the negative side is those aha moments. We've all taken those assessments that you're talking about, the Enneagram or the DISC test, and it says, you know, I'll just say for me, uh, Gary is outgoing and persuasive. And I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like me, right? I mean, you'll have reactions when you hear that sounds like me will be your aha reaction or what? That doesn't sound like me. And to your point, if the same four things show up in four different assessments that you say, that doesn't sound like me. Or when you ask four different people, you say, that doesn't sound like me. To your point, as my mom uh, I mean, it's funny to hear you say that, Warwick, because my mom's best advice to me ever was if one person says you're a bad word, it's a difference of opinion. If three or four people say you're that word, chances are you may be that word. So that becomes the, <laughs> the, the, that aha moment as you get that feedback, either through an assessment or through, a, through conversations with friends and family. Look for the aha moments. Are are you agreeing with that? Those are those are things that are authentically you. If you're not agreeing with that, those are probably also things if they show up a lot of times that are that are authentically you. So look for those authentically you things that are both quote unquote positive and negative, and that will help you as you move forward. Another part of this, Warwick, is after you sort of do a baseline assessment, there are some things you write about in the book that folks can do to build, dig into, understand more about, build more authenticity. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, uh, and this is in chapter four in the book, one of the first things you mentioned is to have an anchor in their lives. And, you know, as you talk about that, you know, talk about it from the from the third person perspective. You're giving wisdom mm -hmm. to people. And then if there's anything from your own story, bring that in as well. Yeah, it's a good question. I think really we talk in crucible leadership a lot about choice. So when you've had a crucible, you have a choice. High another covers for the next 30, 40, 50 years until it all melts away. Or, hey, this was awful. It was unfair. I'm going to choose to uh, find my way back to a life of significance, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. The same is true of authenticity. It's a choice. Am I going to choose to be who I am? Now, if you've gone through a period of self-loathing, it could be because terrible things were done to you or you have a low self-image. I think you need to do some soul work. But I think you need, you need to come to the point where I believe God made us all who we are and, you know, scripture talks about we're beautifully and wonderfully made. So who you are is a beautiful and wonderful thing. So it starts with part of having an anchor for your soul, whether it's a major religion, like for me, it's my faith in Christ. It could be another religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam. It could be another philosophy, set of values. Dig deep into your fundamental values and beliefs. 
who is whoever God is or the universe, who have they made me to be? And accept that, honor that, cherish that. I don't mean some sort of self-worship thing, but it starts with the choice that I'm going to choose to believe that I am wonderfully and perfectly made and I'm different than anybody else. And so it's okay to be me. You know, if, if, you, if, you can't, if you can't get to the point where you can say, it's okay to be me, then you'll never be authentic because you, you, you won't want to be. You will run from it. You know, no assessment will help those who are consumed with self-loathing. And sometimes there are reasons because of terrible things that have happened to you. So it really, it starts with a choice. I guess for me, I never much so much put on this mask of who I was and it was just this opaque thing. And so over time, I've realized it's okay that I'm not some take-no-prisoners kind of um, executive. I'm a thoughtful advisor. I do make decisions quicker than I used to, really. I'm probably more decisive than I actually give myself credit for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I'm thoughtful. I'm, I'm reflective. I'm not overly competitive, per se. I try hard, but I'm unlike a lot of guys that want to pulverize the next guy in a golf game or tennis game. I'm not. So there was a period of my life in my 30s, for instance, where I'd be like, oh, how come I'm not like the next guy that likes to play golf and, you know, bet a dollar a hole or something? That's not wrong. That is the last thing I'd want to do. I just feel so uncomfortable. But so it's, or I'm not that good at building decks or whatever. Well, so what? But, you know, not everybody knows how to fix things. But on the other hand, you know, I love talking about history or faith. I mean, really a whole stack of music. I mean, a stack of different subjects. So it's coming to the point where, you know, it's okay. You know, I don't have, just because I don't have this desire to pulverize somebody else at golf or tennis doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It just means I'm different. It sounds stupid and childish. We all have those things within us that, you know, we wish we were like the next guy or, or the other woman, you know? How come I'm not as pretty as that woman or whatever? How come I'm not taller or how come I'm not thinner or how come I'm not A or B? I mean, we all have our list of things, you know? So it, this whole area of having an anchor, you've just got to make a choice to believe that whoever made, made you, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. And just because you're different, different doesn't mean bad. Different, I believe, means beautiful in a sense from a soul perspective. So that, you know, if you have that anchor, that foundation, you're well on your way to living an authentic life. If you don't have that, you will find it almost impossible to live an authentic life if you're filled with self-loathing and self-hatred, as vast amounts of people are, unfortunately. You need to accept those things. And that's where, again, if you go through the assessments, if you go through asking friends and family, you know, take that, um, weigh that counsel, that feedback uh, seriously and apply it as, as it's appropriate to help you as you move forward. Uh, the second thing you talk about in the book um, about how to dig your way into authenticity is to find true friends. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can find friends who, uh, you know, almost in quotation marks, who just want to pull you down and say, and you always knew you'd fail or they they just kind of don't encourage you to strive for for anything. Um, Or you can find, like for the rich and famous, the Hollywood people, for instance, you can find friends who they just want you to be your friends while you're successful. And as soon as you maybe have a few movies that didn't go so well, or maybe you got fired from your CEO slot, they, you know, disappear 
in, in a nanosecond. It's like they walk on the other side of the street. I never knew you. Don't know who you are. Gary who? Warwick who? They just don't know who you are. Uh, that's pretty soul-crushing when they th you thought that you were your friends, they were your friends. So you want to find people that are not there to be with the fake you, the inauthentic you. They like the real you, quirks and all. We all have our quirks. That makes us who we are, I would say, that makes us beautiful people in the real sense of the word, not the Hollywood sense of the word. The third point that you make uh, about how you can dig into, um, discover some, uh, you know, reset your authenticity is to find the right environment. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, you know, really, you know, it can be as simple as, you know, if you're somebody that kind of likes uh, the country, you know, rural areas or the mountains, you know, if you need to be in nature for your soul to sing, don't be holed up in some apartment or some cubicle in, you know, a skyscraper in Los Angeles or New York. It's not wrong, but it may not fit with who you are as a person. You know, if you're somebody that more likes the buzz and the activity of a big city, then don't be in the middle of nowhere. It's not right or wrong. And similarly, with the companies that, you're, that you work with and organizations, if you're somebody that likes a slower pace of life and you want to, you know, have time to smell the roses and chat to people, don't work in some New York investment banking firm when you're going to work till, you know, 10 p.m. every night and most weekends. I mean, it's not right or wrong. I mean, although I think for family reasons, working 24 hours a day is probably not a good way to have a happy family and happy spouse, but that's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, you want the environment you're in to support who you are. And from a values perspective, you know, if your values, I don't know, honesty, integrity, kindness, and you're working in some, you know, uh, corporate deal-making environment, that's not going to be a good fit. And let's forget value judgments for, for a moment. You know, you want, to, you want to have an environment that supports the real you, the real authentic you, because environments tend to want to mold you into being who they want you to be. Again, I come back to Hollywood, such a classic example. It tends to want to mold you into who they think that you should be. So, um, you know, it's not wrong to want to do that. Not, not at all, in any way, shape, or form. But find an environment, both physically, uh, location, and in terms of culture, that supports who you, the real you. Don't try to be a um, kind of fish out of water. And you're, you know, you're, uh, you love the ocean and somehow you're stranded on a beach somewhere, you know, you know, what'll happen to a fish, it dies if it doesn't have water. So <laughs> your, right. your, your soul will die if you're in an environment that is toxic to, you know, what you treasure and who you are, who the real you is. A while back, you described um, an elevator ride you had when you, when the uh, takeover of the family media uh, dynasty was successful. Uh, on paper, it was successful. You were in charge. You were proprietor. But you described that elevator ride as being up there. You're in charge. You're surrounded by your employees, and you are uh, uncomfortable. Um, safe to say uh, that was not the right environment, being the proprietor of John Fairfax Limited? It certainly wasn't. I mean, at heart, I'm a, uh, I'm a reflective advisor. I don't yearn to be in charge. I would rather listen and learn. I love learning about things that I don't know anything about, which is one of the things I love about 
this podcast we have, Beyond the Crucible, right. when we interview guests, I'm continually learning about people's stories that, for the most part, I didn't know anything about. So I love that. So, yeah, I'm a reflective advisor. Being on a board is not a bad fit. Writing a book, you know, talking on podcasts and other things we do about, you know, how your worst day doesn't have to define your life and how you bounce back to live a life of significance from your crucible. That's all a good fit, but... Um, being in charge of some massive media company, it wasn't my vision and it so wasn't, you know, who I was. You know, I don't yearn to be in charge of some big company making a hundred decisions a minute. That's just not who I am, you know. I, right. I think and consider too much, you know. So, no, that was just a, a incredibly bad fit for who I was and certainly wasn't the person I felt needed to be in that slot wasn't me. Certainly wasn't the authentic me. And that, if more than anything else we've talked about, I think is is a is a spotlight, uh, is a floodlight on how important authenticity is to your sense of fulfillment, your life of significance that, that we talk about a lot on the show. Um, because what you just said was being in charge of a multi-billion dollar corporation, right? We tend to think money's going to make us all very happy. Power's going to make us all very happy. The key to joy is to have things and to have influence and to have, and that's the other part of the family media company is he had a lot of influence in Australia. You, you were a, that, that company was an opinion shaper. Um, all of those things weren't as important to you weren't as fulfilling to you as being who you are authentically. That is a powerful endorsement of just how critical authenticity is, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, and frankly, it gets another subject. I don't think power and money make too many people happy. But, you know, there is a person personality maybe that could have been happy in that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was miserable. And so when I moved to the U.S. in the 90s, when my kids were small, just being with my young family and throwing a ball or going to, you know, ballet recitals or whatever it was, um, you know, that would fill me with, uh, you know, I would enjoy that. Being an executive coach, helping people accomplish their dreams, writing, these are all things that, that I enjoy. And over time, and this wasn't a one and done thing, it took years not just to come back from my crucible, but to accept that I am who I am and it's okay to be me. It was not an easy journey. Just we talk about the way back from the crucible, the way back to, you know, it's okay to be me. Like I'm at the point where I don't worry about, you know, golf games and competitions and I tend not to sign up for those things that don't enjoy it. It stresses me out. And so I'm okay with that. You know, there are other yeah. things that I enjoy doing. So it the journey to authenticity a bit like the journey back from a crucible, it can take a while to say, it's okay to be me and, you know, take those steps. It's it's not self-love, but the whole, it's, it does come back to the identity. It's okay to be you, but it just takes a while because most of us don't grow up in an environment where we think it's okay to be me. You know, yeah. it's, it's because being, when you say it's okay to be me, that means by definition, you are secure and self-confident in the best sense of the word. And there aren't too many secure and self-confident people in the true soul sense of that word. It's all, it's another side of the coin to authenticity. 
it's a journey to really being willing to be your true authentic self. Yeah. And I know what you mean when you say it's okay to be me, but really it, it, it's better than okay to be me, right. right? It's it's essential to be you. It's the road to significance to be you, right? That's, that's one of the first uh, cobblestones on that road. Uh, the last of the four things that you talk about and how to kind of build authenticity to kind of lean into it is to do what you're good at. And you teased that a little bit. You talked about it kind of, you touched on it when you, uh, in this last section about the right environment, but uh, do what you're good at. Uh, unpack that a little bit for listeners. This is phrase, and I think it was a former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, Dick Halverson, at least that's what I was told. And the phrase is something like this, don't do what you're merely good at, do what you're great at. And that sounds a bit arrogant, but I believe, frankly, from a, a divine perspective, we're all made by God a certain way. And so when you fully live in line of how you were made, your true authentic self, I believe that we're all great at some things. And for me, I feel like I'm, you know, a good writer. Um, I, I, I think I'm you know, pretty good at asking questions. Uh, I reflect maybe some degree of wisdom in certain areas. There, uh, you know, I'm good on boards because I listen, I reflect, and, you know, ask probing questions. So there are things I like to feel like in some sense that I'm good if not great at. It's hard to say that about yourself. But I think that's true. So, you know, don't just do things that you're good at. Do what you're great at. Like I have training because uh, I worked on Wall Street in financial analysis. So if I wanted to in the two nonprofit boards I've been on, I could have been on the finance committee. Well, I avoid those like the plague because I'm not interested in finance. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, but just because I have knowledge doesn't mean that's truly who I am. And just because I'm good at it technically... I don't enjoy it. And so I'd rather have people that actually enjoy, you know, numbers and um, finance. Look, when it comes to the full board, I'm happy to ask questions because it's like I do understand this stuff. But I just want right. to be, I don't want to be, you know, wallow in it, if you will, for uh, hours and, and days. So I feel like we're all great at something. We all have certain gifts and abilities. I believe God doesn't make mistakes. So if he's given you certain gifts, abilities, and passions, those are God-given, and the more you lead in light of that and be that person, that true authentic self with your passions and your God-given abilities, uh, especially, and this is the other key in crucial leadership, when you use the gifts and abilities and passions in service of others for a higher purpose, what we call a life is a gift against, that is the path to joy and fulfillment. If you try to be who you are not, the inauthentic self, uh, the, the mask, and, you know, that is a way to, to misery. So you want to be filled with joy and, and be fulfilled. Be your true authentic self with your gifts and abilities and your God-given passions in a way that serves others. I mean, it, it's really that simple. If, you know, if you need a motivational talk for why be authentic, you know, don't you want to be the real you? You know you do. You know you want to be you. Wouldn't it be nice if your friends said, you know what, Gary Warwick, I like you just because you are, quirks and all. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But they like the real me? Like, really? And you're, and you're somehow using the real you in service of others? That's the way to joy and fulfillment. And who doesn't want joy and fulfillment? 
Well, one of the things that is the authentic me as the co-host of the show is to point out when the sound we hear is the captain turning on the <laughs> fasten seatbelt sign indicating that we will be landing the plane soon, but not quite yet. We have a little bit more time, uh, listener, to uh, explore this topic, uh, this important topic of why authenticity is so important to both leadership and to moving beyond your crucible. Um, and one of the examples you give in the book, Warwick, in the chapter on authenticity is, um, and we've talked about him before on the podcast for different reasons, but he, he's one of the leaders that you um, admire, I think, that uh, is Abraham Lincoln. And, and so how did Abraham Lincoln manifest authenticity and what did that allow him to do as uh, as a leader, you know Abraham Lincoln, as um, some would know, is is voted by historians as the um, so, well most famous, but I would say um, the most respected president in uh, in U.S. history. You know Lincoln was somebody that um, didn't put in put on airs, and he became uh, president in um, I guess April around about April. Uh, March, April, eighteen sixty-one, as the uh, Civil War was about to begin, and he was uh, from the then backwoods of Illinois. It was considered the West back then. You know, he was not particularly well educated in the sense of schooling. He was self-educated. He read a lot of books. He was a country lawyer. You know, doing the rounds in Illinois, and he would just share, even with his cabinet, these homespun stories. Instead of making a point, he would go on for probably 10 or 15 minutes with some story, and his, his cabinet members' eyes would roll, and here we go, the president's going to give one of his stories again, you know, and off he'd go. But he was who he was. He was authentic. He was probably one of the most self-confident and secure per people uh, that's ever been in office, probably by a wide margin, if you said to him, you know, uh, Mr. Lincoln, I think your policy here is is wrong, he'd say, well, you're probably right, but tell me why you think that. His presumption is, I'm going to listen to you and you got to have evidence. But he was just very authentic and obviously had other characteristics of just uh, strength and um, certitude in a time when it was, you know, the, one of the darkest days in American history with the Civil War. But he was so real he didn't put on any ears. You know, what you saw is what you got. I mean, he was one of the most authentic people in American history. And, you know, you could see the goodness of his soul, too, which was sort of remarkable. But, you know, he didn't try to be some East Coast fancy person. He was right. grew up in an, a small, you know, log cabin, so to speak, as, as you know, folklore in a sense tell, tells us. He was just, he was very authentic. And okay, he wasn't some fancy, sophisticated East Coast person. He didn't care. He was who he was. And initially, some of those East Coast elite people looked down on him, no question. You know, but over time, including his own cabinet, who most of them were his rivals through the Republican nomination, but over time, they began to see the real Abraham Lincoln, the authentic Abraham Lincoln, was a great man, was a great person. So he won them over. But initially, they just said, who is this guy? You know. Where's he from? Illinois, which is way out west. Yeah, but it takes courage to be authentic, and he had certainly plenty of courage. That is an excellent 
way to uh, land the plane, I think uh, it takes courage to be authentic. I mean, if, if you had to summarize what it is that we've talked about here, right, it takes courage to be authentic. It takes courage to stand up and say, yes, I'm a guy and a guy stereotypically is supposed to know how to fix cars and uh, I'm with you. I mean, my way of fixing cars is to say, how much is that? And then I write a check. <laughs> right. Um, right. I mean, that's the way that I do those things. Um, it, it takes courage to be authentic and you can build that courage muscle by doing some of the things that we've talked about on the show today, right? Yeah, I think it really, it starts with identity. If you're a person of faith, think of it this way, or even if you're not a person of faith, God loves you for who you are warts and all. Doesn't mean if there are things you need to make right in your life and stop hurting people, doesn't mean you don't have to fix some of those things. It's got nothing to do with authenticity. But the fundamental person that you are, God loves you because of who you are. Hopefully you have a spouse or some friends uh, and family that love you for who you are and they know the real you. So it really starts with saying, you know, God loves me for who I am. Hopefully I have some friends and a spouse, a partner who love me for who I am. That is then a foundation to say, I'm going to make a decision that it's okay to be me, you know, and I'm going to be the real me and I'm not going to put on a mask. And if some people don't like it, well, they can move on, you know, move on. I don't need, I don't need people who don't like the real me. I'm not talking about the stuff that hurts people. That's, I'm not talking about that, but I mean, the true you, um, not, you know, some of those other things. But the real you, you don't need those friends that don't like that. Surround yourself with the people that do like who you are and find a way to use who you are in service of others in a passion that you feel like will make the world a better place. That's That will support your authenticity. So it really, as we often say in crucible leadership, it begins with a choice. Choose to be the authentic, true, true you. Choose to be the authentic, true you Today, it starts with a choice. A plane on the ground. Way to land the plane, Warwick. That is, uh, that's an excellent exhortation for listeners um, to, it's okay to be you. Uh, remember that. Uh, this is, in, I've never done this before. This is uh, the second week in a row in which I'm going to end the show, not with takeaways, but I'm going to give homework to you, listener. Sorry, I'd hate to be, um, I'm sort of authentically the, the like your high school <laughs> English teacher, but because in each chapter of his book, Crucible Leadership, um, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance, Warwick has reflection questions. And there are three reflection questions at the end of chapter four, which I think are good for you to kind of lean into as you reflect on um, what we've just talked about on this episode of the show. Question one is, what are your strengths, weaknesses, and personal values? So dig into that. As we talked about here, ask some other people uh, about that. Take some some assessments, some things that help you get to the bottom of that question. Second question, in what situations or scenarios might you be putting on a mask rather than being your authentic self? And then this, this is critical. Why do you think you do that? All right. Identify the situations where you may be masking up and then ask yourself, why do you think you're doing that? That requires, to use one of Warwick's favorite words on the show, some real soul work uh, to, 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 to honestly answer that question, uh, to authentically answer that question. Why do you think it's more comfortable for you to wear a mask in those situations? And then the third question, 
How can your authentic self inspire and help others? And that really is the focus of why we do Beyond the Crucible. Uh, it's to help you uh, find that way to inspire and help others, to lead what Warwick calls a life of significance, a life on purpose and service to others. So, listener, until we meet again next time, do remember this. Uh, we understand, we know, um, hopefully it's come through in our conversation today, that your crucibles are difficult. Those experiences can be very traumatic. But we also know this to be true. They are not the end of your story. In fact, they can be the start of an entirely new story that can be the best story of your life. Your worst day of your life can turn into the best day of your life because as you learn the lessons from that trauma and tragedy and setback and failure and apply them to your life and move forward, the destination that you reach is a life of significance.